Hello, everyone, and welcome to the June 11th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. More than 80 concussion-related suits have been filed against the NFL by more than 2,000 former ballplayers. A master complaint will be filed this month in federal court in Philadelphia, summarizing the players' claims that the league fraudulently concealed long-term effects of head trauma for decades. Many of these players have or have had workers' compensation claims pending in California as well. In April, U.S. District Judge Anita Brody gave the players' attorneys until this month to file the master complaint. She's given NFL attorneys until August 9th to respond to the complaint or file a motion to dismiss the cases. One argument by the NFL will be that ex-players have no standing to file such suits because the injury issues were covered by collective bargaining agreements. The players' attorneys contended that the concussion dispute goes beyond the terms of the contracts between the league and the players' union. In addition to seeking damages, the complaint asks the court to order the league to create a court-supervised medical monitoring of players for potential brain disorders or disease. In 2009, the NFL announced a stricter st statement on returning to play following concussions. In 2010, the league formed a new head, neck, and spine committee. It replaced a previous mild traumatic brain injury committee formed in 1994. The previous group's research findings are a prime target of the former players' lawsuits. The master complaint calls those past NFL research findings industry-funded, biased, and falsified. It says the league willfully ignored outside research linking concussion to the long-term effects such as depression and dementia. Players allege that NFL's conduct in this regard is willful and wanton and exhibits a reckless disregard for the safety of its players and the public at large. <clears throat> in addition to the NFL, the defendants in the master complaint include Riddell, the manufacturer of the official helmet of the NFL. Players allege that the helmets were defective in design, unreasonably dangerous, and unsafe for their intended purpose. The Court of Appeal ruled that a failure to file a DOR does not invalidate an injured worker's notice of appeal. Here's what happened in the unpublished opinion of the Kroger Company versus WCAB and George Velasquez. Back in 2005, the Rehabilitation Unit awarded George Velasquez rehabilitation benefits starting back in 2004. The employer, the Kroger Company, DBA Ralph's Grocery, filed a notice of appeal from this award within the 20-day time limit required by law. The appeal was set twice for a hearing before the WCAB in 2007, but both times the case was taken off calendar. The balance of 2007, 8, and 9 passed, with the parties in disagreement whether the case was ready to proceed to trial. The first hearing on the merits took place in 2011. Ralph's trial brief argued that because it had taken a timely appeal from the Rehabilitation Unit's award, and because that appeal was still pending on January 1, 2009, the award was not final by January 1, 2009, when Labor Code Section 139.5 was repealed, 
and thus Velasquez was therefore not entitled to rehabilitation benefits. The work comp judge rejected this argument and awarded rehabilitation benefits and concluded that Ralph's 2005 appeal was defective in that Ralph's had not filed a declaration of readiness along with their notice of appeal. The work comp judge relied on Rule 10955, which provides that appeals shall be commenced by filing a DOR and a petition setting forth the reason for the appeal. <clears throat> the WCAB <clears throat> denied the petition for reconsideration of the award of rehabilitation benefits. The Court of Appeal, in the unpublished opinion of the Kroger Company versus WCAB and George Velasquez, reversed the WCAB and ruled in favor of the employer. The court noted that the notice of appeal was timely under Subdivision D of former Labor Code Section 4645. Timeliness is the only statutory requirement imposed on the notice of appeal. While a number of additional documents are required for an, for an appeal, once the notice of appeal has been filed, an appeal is in fact been taken. The DOR is not a requirement for the appeal to be effective. The Court of Appeal ruled that filing an SNW application tolls the statute of limitations for an applicant, even though it was not timely served on the employer. Here's what happened in the unpublished opinion of TNT Construction versus WCAB and Curtis Ray Hillman. Ray Hillman was injured in 2008 while working as a road grader for petitioner TNT Construction, and he subsequently died. Hillman's attorney filed an application for adjudication of claim with the board in 2008 and served TNT Construction with a copy of the application. Hillman's counsel then filed a petition for serious and willful misconduct with the board in, in 2009, five days before the 12-month statute of limitations applied. However, the SNW petition was never served on TNT. After the 12-month statute of limitations applied, his counsel filed with the board an amended petition for serious and willful misconduct and served it on the employer the same day. TNT claimed that because Hillman failed to file the serious and willful petition uh, and uh, within the 12-month time limit, the proceeding is barred. TNT argues that the word commenced, as used in Labor Code Section 5407, plainly means and refers to both filing and serving a serious and willful misconduct petition. TNT also referenced the regulations which require that the applicant shall concurrently serve a copy of the application and any accompanying documents on all other parties and lien claimants. The work comp judge found Hillman's claim for increased benefits was not barred by the statute of limitations and the WCAB denied reconsideration. The Court of Appeal in the unpublished opinion of TNT Construction versus WCAB and Curtis Ray Hillman sustained the ruling of the work comp judge. The Supreme Court in the 1998 case of Kudra versus Milan discussed the concept of filing as officially commencing an action. The plaintiff's act of filing the complaint fixes the date on which the action is filed. The term commenced when used in connection with a statute of limitations connotes filing of the application, not both filing and service. 
The court concluded that if the legislature intended to deviate from this common meaning to include service, it would have included the word service in the language of Labor Code Section 5407. The Court of Appeal ruled that the use of a DBA by an employer does not limit the employer's protection under the exclusive remedy provisions. Here's what happened in the unpublished opinion of Jose Hernandez Jr. versus Gray Lift Incorporated. Hernandez was killed while a passenger in a truck operated by an employee of Gray Lift. At the time of the accident, Hernandez was a special employee of Construction Rental Services which was a fictitious business name of Gray Lift. His heirs at law filed a wrongful death action against Gray Lift and its employee driver. Gray Lift is a California corporation which in part has a DBA of construction rental services. Defendants moved for summary judgment on the ground that construction rental services and Gray Lift Incorporated were one and the same entity and therefore the lawsuit was barred by the exclusive remedy provisions of workers' compensation law. Plaintiffs opposed the motion, pointing out that construction rental services was in many respects operated separately from Gray Lift Incorporated. Pursuant to this theory, plaintiffs presented evidence that construction rental services was operated separately, including that it was a separate division or department or profit center of Gray Lift that construction rental services rented, installed, then took down temporary fences. Its profits and losses were separately tracked. It noted that invoices and contracts were entered in the names of construction rental services, not Gray Lift. Gray Lift's president was not familiar with certain details regarding contracts with temporary agencies. Construction rental services also had a separate logo which was used as a marketing objective to attract more customers. And plaintiffs pointed out that Graylift Incorporated was primarily in the business of sales, service, parts, rental of forklift equipment, and personal lifts and dock equipment. Unfortunately, none of these arguments worked for the plaintiffs. The trial court granted the motion for summary judgment. The Court of Appeal affirmed the dismissal of the claim. The court held that construction rental services was the same entity as Graylift Incorporated and that Graylift was therefore decedent's employer. And now our fraud report. A physician assistant who worked at fraudulent medical clinics where he used the stolen identities of doctors to write prescriptions for medically unnecessary durable medical equipment and diagnostic tests has been convicted of conspiracy healthcare fraud, and aggravated identity theft charges in connection with his $18.9 million Medicare fraud scheme. After a two-week trial in federal court in Los Angeles, a jury found David James Garrison of Lemert Park guilty of one count of conspiracy to commit healthcare fraud, six counts of healthcare fraud, and one count of aggravated identity theft. The evidence at trial showed that Garrison worked at fraudulent medical clinics that operated as prescription mills and trafficked in fraudulent prescriptions and orders for medically unnecessary DME, such as power wheelchairs and diagnostic tests. 
The fraudulent prescriptions and orders were used by fraudulent DME supply companies and medical testing facilities to defraud Medicare. Garrison wrote the prescriptions and ordered the tests on behalf of some doctors he never met and who did not authorize him to write prescriptions and order tests on their behalf. Garrison's co-conspirator Edward Aslanian and others owned and operated several clinics in Los Angeles established for the sole purpose of defrauding Medicare. Aslanian and others hired street-level recruiters to find Medicare beneficiaries willing to provide the recruiters with their Medicare billing information in exchange for high-end power wheelchairs and other DME, which the patient recruiters told the beneficiaries they would receive for free. In exchange for recruiting the Medicare beneficiaries, Aslanian and others paid the recruiters cash kickbacks. Often the Medicare beneficiaries did not have a legitimate medical need for the wheelchairs and equipment. In some cases, Garrison wrote power wheelchair prescriptions for beneficiaries he never examined and who never visited the clinics. Aslanian and others sold the prescriptions for as much as $1,500 to the owners and operators of approximately 50 fraudulent DME supply companies. The DME supply companies purchased the power wheelchairs wholesale for approximately $900 each and submitted bills to Medicare for approximately $5,000 per wheelchair. Garrison also ordered medically unnecessary diagnostic tests for many Medicare beneficiaries, including tests for sleep studies, ultrasounds, ultrasounds and nerve conduction tests. Garrison is scheduled to be sentenced by United States District Judge Consuelo B. Marshall on September 17th. He faces a maximum statutory penalty of 72 years in federal prison and a $2 million fine. The aggravated identity theft conviction alone carries a mandatory two-year prison sentence. Two men have been charged with conspiracy and three counts of workers' compensation fraud for allegedly misrepresenting the kind of work their employees perform to their insurance company. The DA's office, Workers' Comp Fraud Unit, received information from First Comp Insurance alleging that Chino Hills resident Eric Gam, owner of West Coast Steel in Processing, was possibly committing insurance fraud. As a result of the investigation, arrest warrants were issued for Gam and co-conspirator Gregory Santolucito, his Hesperia insurance broker. Gam and Santolucito are accused of conspiring to defraud First Comp Insurance of over $100,000 by falsifying employee wages. As a result, the employer was able to pay the insurance company a lower rate of insurance. Gam was arrested and booked into West Valley Detention Center, and Santolucito surrendered himself to the San Bernardino County Sheriff's West Valley Detention Center in Rancho Cucamonga. If convicted on all counts, Gam faces a maximum of six years in state prison, and Santo Lucito faces a maximum of seven years in prison as well. And in medical news, the fee schedule spinal implant loophole costs $67 million a year to California employers. Workers' compensation medical costs in California were boosted by this amount in 2010 
due to the loophole in the law that allows double billing for surgical implants. According to a study released by the California Workers' Compensation Institute, that number could even be significantly higher when the CWCI compiles another report following the anticipated release of more current government data in the next few months. The full set of data for 2011 for the, from the California Office of Statewide Health Planning and Development is not expected to be released for at least another month. The study authors used a previous study from CWCI based on information from 2008 and updated it with more current information to produce the current report. The study was conducted at the request of the Senate Committee on Labor and Industrial Relations, which is chaired by State Senator Ted Liu. Senator Liu is the author of Senate Bill 959, which would address the Medicare fee schedule adopted in 2004, and California law, which allows for a separate cost for material and hardware and spinal implants to be added upon the original costs. This payment is known as a pass-through and is considered a double payment because it allows a hospital to pass along the cost of a device, instrumentation, or hardware, even though the cost is technically taken into consideration when setting the original reimbursement level. Lou's bill cleared the Senate floor on a 34-2 vote late last month and is now in the State Assembly. According to the CWCI study, Duplicate payments on all pass-through procedures averaged over $20,000 each procedure. And in financial news, American International Group has agreed to pay over $146 million to all 50 states and the District of Columbia to settle a complaint that it misreported billions of dollars in workers' compensation premiums. AIG was accused of misreporting $21.1 billion in workers' compensation premium as other lines of insurance in past years. The settlement stems from 2006 allegations that surfaced when then New York Attorney General Elliot Spitzer accused AIG of underreporting workers' comp premiums over several decades to avoid paying its fair share of state residual market assessments. AIG's workers' comp competitors then sued, alleging that they paid states more than their fair share because AIG was assigned an improperly small share of high-risk workers' comp policies as a result of the underreporting. AIG's payout reportedly depended on the insurers first resolving the litigation with its rivals. This year, a Chicago federal judge formally approved a $450 million settlement of a class action brought against AIG by these competitors. And in other news, DWC Director Rosa Moran visited a local claim department. This was on the heels of April's Seven City Public Forum Tour. DWC Director Rosa Moran continued her fact-finding mission on the workers' compensation process. Moran visited the Pleasanton office of ICW Group Insurance Companies, a multi-line carrier based in Southern California. She met with numerous examiners as they processed work comp claims. It is believed that this was the first claims office visit by a DWC administrative director.
Moran was invited by ICW Group to get an up-close look at processing work comp benefits to injured workers from the claim side. Throughout the day, she sat side by side with claims examiners, <clears throat> listening in on their telephonic interaction with injured workers, medical providers, and lien claimants, and she watched the processing of paperwork that accompanies ICW Group's high-volume operation. She also saw how software is used in facilitating the overall claims process. <clears throat> Moran said that spending time with the claims operation was extremely interesting and educational. She also said that how a carrier handles a work comp claim is vital to ensuring the system is working properly. ICW Group's Assistant Vice President Amanda Granger was impressed with Moran's focus and enthusiasm. The firm of Floyd, Skarin & Kelly has announced that the firm has acquired a new office building in Westlake Village that will be their flagship and new headquarters of the firm offering a new beginning for them in the 25th year of their founding. The Westlake Village office is a multi-million dollar facility in the shadow of the Four Seasons Hotel near the intersection of Lindero Canyon Boulevard and the 101 Freeway. Given its size, it will enable the firm to not only continue its remarkable growth, but to consolidate in one location the Thousand Oaks and Culver City offices, as well as the employment law, publishing, studio production, and its other IT departments. It is expected that the facility will be available for occupancy after the present renovation is completed in August 2012. And with that, that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your iPod by searching for the Work Comp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. And please drop by our website again next week for more news.